Amen. Thank you, Darla. You know, they had been slaves for 400 years when suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, God shows up providing a prophet and a savior, Moses. And this was no ordinary prophet, born a slave, miraculously saved by God as an infant and raised in the courts of Pharaoh. He, when he was an adult, he saw the brutality of the Egyptian soldiers on his people. And in a fit of rage, he killed one of those Egyptian soldiers. He thought he was protecting his people, the the Jewish people, but they weren't really impressed. The Jews as slaves to the people of Egypt, they were treated like animals and they had a slave mentality. What's one more death? It doesn't matter anyway. They saw Moses just like they saw the Egyptians. No better, no worse. So Moses had to flee Egypt as word spread to Pharaoh that Moses had murdered one of the Egyptian soldiers. And so Moses went and started a new life in a new country, new family, new occupation. He thought his world would end there, but God had other ideas. And from the burning bush in the desert, God called Moses to go back to Egypt And to be the hand of deliverance for a people born into slavery. And through the miracles of God, the the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians, Pharaoh finally relented and let the people go. And as they're going, as they're leaving Egypt and going out into the desert, Pharaoh has a change of heart and a change of mind. And he says, no, I'm going to go and pursue them. And so literally the uh, the Israelites are stuck between a rock and a hard place, the sea in front of them and the uh, Pharaoh and his army behind him. When God shows up again miraculously, parts the waters of the Red Sea as the people of God walk through on dry land. And then as Pharaoh and his armies are pursuing, he releases the waters and it destroys Pharaoh's armies. They were free. They were free. And they had no idea how to live as free people. And God led them into the desert and they camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And God spoke to them about who they really were. Their true identity. They weren't designed to be slaves. In chapter 19 of Exodus, we read these incredible words. Now, I want you to think about the impact of these words on these former slaves. They had a slave mentality. It had been beat into them for 400 years. They could hardly believe what God was telling them through Moses. God said, you are my treasured possession. You are my treasured possession. You are mine and if you obey me, you will be blessed. You will have life. You are to be a kingdom of priests, holy and set apart. Those were the words that God spoke to these former slaves. It was hard for them to swallow. A kingdom of priests, a special treasured possession. This was language that was completely foreign to them. They they had really no idea what this meant. It could hardly sink in. And from those words, 
That's when God gave them the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. In Hebrew, it's translated as the Ten Words. Actually, Ten Commandments doesn't appear in our Bible. That's just the title we give to it. But in Hebrew, it means the Ten Words. These words were designed to give these Jews a new identity, their true identity. These words were designed to free them, not enslave them. So throughout this sermon series, you'll often hear us refer to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words or this word from God. Now, a lot of times, Charlie mentioned this last week, when, when we think about these Ten words, we truly think of them as commandments. We think of them oftentimes as limiting us. And, and it's understandable because six of these words begin with thou shalt not, right? Thou shalt not. When someone tells you no, though, or you can't do that, you know, we're good Texans. We, we don't like to hear that, do we? You, you know, if someone says no or don't do that, we, we say hide and watch. We'll, I'll show you. You know, we oftentimes have that mentality, but we have to remember that these people were slaves and these words brought order to their chaos. These words fostered health and healthy boundaries instead of brutality and drudgery. These are 10 words of life. And that's how I want us to view these 10 words. Again, think about this. The first thing God offers these former slaves is not this list. The first thing that God offers is an invitation to a relationship. And these 10 words are offered more like a list of practices that give us healthy relationship in a community so that they can live as free people and not slaves. These words were to set them free, to truly live out in their destiny and who they were supposed to be. And as we said last week, we're counting down these, this top 10 from 10 to one. So this is number 10 on our top 10 list. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not cover, covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Number 10, you shall not covet. We, we talked last week that we would invite you to memorize all of these 10 words that we have from Exodus. This 10th word for us is truly a word that invites us to go from envy to contentment. And I like the way Ellsworth Callis uh, reinterprets this word for us. You shall rejoice in your neighbor's having. You shall rejoice in your neighbor's having. The 10th word, is, it's such an interesting commandment for us uh, because who can define when we're breaking this commandment? Think about it. Coveting begins in here, right? It's hard for anyone to know if we're actually coveting unless we tell someone. But this, this commandment is born in the heart. Only we and God knows if we're truly coveting. Now, the others don't murder, 
There's evidence of that, right? Don't commit adultery, don't steal. We have external evidence that we have broken those. But coveting begins in the heart. And so it's between us and God most often. And we need to understand that. Uh, but this, this word from God to us, it, it's born in the heart. It's spiritual. It's one of those secret sins that only God and us really know about. But the dictionary defines coveting as a, a desire or yearning to possess what belongs to another. Just so we have the, the definition there. It is a desire or yearning or a longing, but it is different from a desire or yearning or longing. We need to understand that desire by itself, not a bad thing. Uh, a desire can be good. But coveting or envy, however, is when a desire or yearning goes too far. In that coveting, we are desiring what belongs to someone else. And it becomes unhealthy. It violates the rights of others. Have you ever found yourself desiring something your neighbor has? Wanting it so bad that you can hardly think of anything else? And again, I want us to look at this 10th word. It starts like this. You shall not covet your neighbors. And then just fill in the blank. What, what's the focus on this 10th word? Not the fill in the blank. The neighbor. The neighbor is the focus. You shall not covet your neighbor's. It, it has to do with our neighbor. There's, there's something broken in us that often desires an object, not for the object itself, but precisely because our neighbor has it. Someone else has it and we don't. Coveting and envy are born out of a sense of discontentment that is in our spirit. We see something on ad, advertised TV, internet, and we think that's pretty cool. But then someone we know gets it and then we gotta have it. There's something broken within us. We look at the coworker and we think they're happy because they have this latest and greatest thing. So we must possess it to be happy. I must keep up with them and look like them and act like them or else I won't be happy. And here's a fascinating thing. You would think in 21st century America, where we have almost everything we could ever want or need, that with the increase of wealth, Coveting would go down, but it doesn't, does it? Because it's not about the object. It's about the heart. It, it, it's about the heart. I want you to hear this. Getting more does not cure envy. <laughs> Getting more does not cure that coveting spirit within you. Coveting really has nothing to do with what we have. It is a heart issue. It is a spirit issue. Coveting is never content. Envy is never content. It takes a transformation of our hearts. Coveting and envy make us competitors of our neighbor. It creates this desire for more and more. It, it it's never satisfies. It puts a wedge between us and our neighbor. When we're under the spell of coveting and envy, we cannot see clearly. That's the irony of coveting. We take our eyes off what is truly important and we focus on this one thing that we don't have and we can't see everything else. We can't see the other things that satisfy 
We don't count the cost. We can't see clearly. It is truly faulty vision. And we see this faulty vision in the beginning of the Bible. You know, way back in Genesis, chapter three, in fact. Remember in Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. It is called paradise. It is a paradise. They had everything they could ever want or desire. But what happened? God put this tree in the middle of the garden, right? And he said, don't eat of that tree. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then we read in Genesis 3, 6, these words. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Think about it. What happened? Every day living in the garden, Adam and Eve walked by by this tree every day. They see it every day. It was no big deal to them. But what changed? Remember the serpent? What did he say? He said, take your eyes off of all of this. Let's focus on this thing only. This one thing you don't have. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it a delight? Won't you see clearer if you just focus on this one thing and forget everything else that you've been blessed with? The devil helps her to take her eyes off of all that she has around her and guides her to focus on the one thing she doesn't have. That's what coveting does. It's faulty vision. Here's the funny thing. You know, coveting is so easy for Satan to get us distracted. We think we're seeing clearly. If I just had this, then I'd be okay. But, but the reality is, why does Satan always use this trick for us? It's low-hanging fruit. It's easy, pun intended. It's easy to get us distracted, to forget how we've been blessed. It's a lack of vision of what we have. We're blinded, we can't see reality, we cannot see clearly. We think we are clear-sighted, but it blinds us to everything we have and what we should be enjoying. And it builds within us discontentment And from that discontentment, we think that this person or thing that we're desiring will bring us happiness, but it's a lie from Satan himself. Our deepest desires are only filled by God. Our deepest longings are only filled by Jesus and living in covenant relationship with Jesus. These 10 words that God has given us are an invitation to life abundant life. But too often we see them as limiting our life and our needs and our dreams. And again, we see this warped desire is not about the object itself, but about that fact that our neighbor has it and we don't. I love the quote from C.S. Lewis. He says this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. How can we go from coveting to rejoicing? How can we, as Callus stated, rejoice in our neighbor's having? It takes a transformation of this right here, of our heart. We have to have clear vision. We have to change our mentality and what we focus on. From turning our eyes from what we don't have to what we have in Jesus. We have to invite God's spirit to help us see clearly. 
What's most ironic to me about coveting and envy is that it makes us slaves. God knew that. It enslaves us to the thing we don't have. Slaves to our neighbor's property and position. But God doesn't desire for us to be slaves. He wants us to be set free. See, the Israelites had lived in a slave mentality all their life. And now God is offering them and us in this 10th word, the opportunity to turn from our slavery and rejoice in what we have and what our neighbors have. God is offering us freedom. But what do we do too often? We choose slavery. We can't see the forest for the trees because we're focused on what we don't have. In the Bible, it's littered with story after story of discontentment and coveting. Jesus spoke of it well in the New Testament. I love this little interaction uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus is teaching, and someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I've always been fascinated by that one little line. It always sticks out to me when I read it. And what does Jesus say? I ain't getting involved in that. I ain't touching that with a 10-foot pole. In fact, Jesus says, let me tell you a story. And he launches into a parable about the downfall of the love of stuff. See, the brother wanted part of the inheritance. Did he have a right to it? We don't know. Probably not, actually. This man was unhappy and angry because he wanted something that probably wasn't his. Maybe his father left all the inheritance to his other brother. Is that fair? Doesn't matter. Wasn't his to begin with, right? Doesn't matter. Wasn't his, but this guy, he's like, he wants to get to Jesus because this isn't fair, Jesus. He has more than I do, and I want it. In the book of James, we we read these words. Those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You want something and do not have it, so you commit murder. And you covet something and cannot obtain it. So you engage in disputes and conflicts. How many of you have had a family member die and had some type of inheritance left? That brings out the best of family, doesn't it? Why? Because I want grandma's fine china so that we can leave it in a box for the rest of our life and never use it. (laughs) What? Your relationship with your family is less important than that box of china that's gonna be in the garage and you'll move it? Your grandkids will have to say, what do we do with this? The antidote to envy is contentment. The antidote to coveting is gratefulness. We must relentlessly pursue contentment. Did you hear that? We must relentlessly pursue it. We can't just hang out and say, oh, let it come to me. No, you have to pursue contentment. You have to work at contentment. Because this is what low-hanging fruit that Satan uses all the time. If we're not careful, we'll get caught up in it. 
We, we must have a heart at peace with what we have been blessed with. It starts with a heart and attitude that understands that we don't deserve anything, right? And we have to start at that, that base foundation. As my wife says this all the time, the only thing we deserve is hell. So we have to start with that basic understanding. We deserve nothing but hell as a people. So from there, we build on top of that. The fact that we have life, the fact that God has offered us life and relationship and the promises of eternal life and joy, can you be content with that? If what you deserve is hell, but you've been offered life and a joyous life, is that enough? It should be. Let's turn to the apostle Paul. He says this, of course there's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Paul had the proper perspective. He had learned it the hard way. He understood that he brought nothing into the world, that he will take nothing out of it, that he deserved nothing. He had a proper perspective in the gifts that God had given him. He didn't deserve them, but he was thankful in all circumstances. He realized that if he had food and clothing, it was enough because he had the promise of eternity. So how can we cultivate a sense of enough? Again, I go back to the proper perspective of life. We don't deserve anything but hell. God owns everything. We're called to be faithful and thankful in our life. Paul rejoiced when his neighbor was blessed. If our hearts are transformed into hearts that are grateful and thankful for what we have and for what others have, then it brings peace and joy no matter what our circumstance. That's the proper vision that we should have. When we have that, then we are rich beyond measure. I return to Callus again, who tells a, a great story of Toller of Strasbourg. You can see his likeness there. He's a 14th century mystic and saint. And as the story goes, Toller was walking down the road one day, and he comes upon a beggar. And, and he says to the beggar, I, I pray that God gives you a good day, my friend. The beggar turned to Toller and said, oh, I thank God that I've never had a bad day. Toller was struck by his answer, and he paused, and he said, I pray that you have a happy life, my friend. The beggar replied, I thank God that I've never been unhappy. Now Toller is really intrigued and in awe. And he stops and he looks at him and he says, what do you mean? The beggar says, well, when things are fine, I thank God. When, when it rains, I thank God. When I have plenty, I thank God. When, when I'm hungry, I thank God. And since God's will is my will and whatever pleases him pleases me, why should I say that I'm unhappy when I'm not? Now, Toller is just struck by this beggar. And he turns to him and he says, who are you? You know what the beggar replies? I'm a king. I'm a king. Toller half believing him, says, you're a king. Where's your kingdom? In my heart. In my heart. That's what God is inviting us 
in this 10th word. Let us pray. Thank you, God. Thank you for this invitation to life, true, abundant life that rejoices in our neighbor's having, that rejoices in what we have been blessed with. You have offered us an invitation to contentment. May we take hold of it, swallow it, live it, this 10th word for us that gives us life. Amen.